because it is an important topic, and I really appreciate you calling in. Um, this is you've been listening to Education Today. I want to thank all of our guests, and uh, also to say that the producers for Education Today are Kevin Cartwright and Jaron Epstein. Our board op today is Jill Montgomery. Thank you very much. And I'm your host, Kitty Kelly Epstein. And you are tuned in on 4.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Please stay with us for Cover to Cover. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Jason Minadakis, who is the Artistic Director of Marin Theatre Company, located in Mill Valley. Currently running The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams through December 18th. And we're going to talk about what Marin has done in the past year, what we're looking forward to coming up. We're also going to talk specifically about Tennessee Williams and the Glass Menagerie. What I noticed is different, at least to me, about this production is that the focus is on the narrator, Tom, rather than on the mother character, Amanda. And Tom is, I guess, in a way, Tennessee Williams. Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, it is, without question, his most autobiographical play. A lot of the things that happened to the Wingfield family in the play and that have happened to them leading up to the events of the play are very easily you can see the the relationship between those events and what happened in Tennessee's own life. Um, he and his family moved from the Deep South to St. Louis because their father, Cornelius, got a job in St. Louis at a shoe company and he was going to be traveling around selling shoes. And in the play, Tom and his family moved from the Deep South to St. Louis so that his dad can take a job with the telephone company. Tom gets a job with the shoe company so you know you can see him pulling things from from life and twisting them just a little bit. His sister in real life, Rose, did have some emotional instability in terms of, of her makeup and his sister Laura in the play, Tom's sister Laura, is also not what we would consider a fully functioning emotionally in the play either. So there are a lot of things. His mother was a faded Southern Belle, much as Amanda is in the play. She did her best to kind of instill this very gentlemanly-like quality in her son, but at the same time, she was a very needy woman, very similar to Amanda in the play. So there are a lot of things back and forth between the play and, and Tennessee's real life, besides just his name. His name was actually Tom Lanier Williams. And The Glass Menagerie, this is a collection of glass animals that Laura has. Did Rose have a collection like that? She did, actually. When they moved to St. Louis, Tennessee helped Rose paint her room. They painted it entirely in white, and they, they she kept the shades drawn all the time, partly because her window looked out onto a brick alleyway that was filled with fire escapes and people's laundry and a neighborhood dog had a tendency of chasing stray alley cats into this alley and they would get into fights in the alley and the, the dog would kill the cats and Rose, 
every morning would wake up after this horrific fight would happen at night in the alley and she would see the corpse of the cat outside. So she kept her shades drawn and that kept the room in kind of a perpetual state of kind of gloom or twilight. And in order to brighten it up, she and Tennessee painted the entire room white and then they went out and bought little glass animals that they put all around her room to help bounce the light around and, and kind of gave it this very fairy tale like dreamy quality in the room. Why do you think he named the play The Glass Menagerie? You know, it's interesting. As you mentioned, a lot of productions have really focused on Amanda. The way I look at the play, it's very much a letter, a letter, a, a love letter from Tennessee or Tom to his sister. You know, just speaking, you know, within the play, Tom begins the play with a hello to the audience and to his sister. He ends the play with a goodbye. He also talks about his father, who sent them a postcard when he left them from Mexico that basically had two words on it, hello and goodbye, and no address. So much as dad sent a postcard back to the family to say, I'm leaving, I think in a lot of ways this play is both Tennessee and Tom's hello and goodbye to an apology to his sister, Laura, or Rose, depending on uh, who you're thinking about. So for me, and in the, and the, our production, certainly, we're really focused on the relationship between Tom and Laura. And because of that, you can really see how the thing that has always helped Laura get through is the Glass Menagerie. That is the world within which she is comfortable, within which she has the most confidence, within which she takes the most comfort and the most joy. So that world is very representative of the world inside the apartment. Lara is safe in that world with her mother and Tom. And the first scene of the play is a remarkably comfortable scene. Lara is currently, to the best of everybody's knowledge, at school. She's learning how to be a secretary. Tom's job is going well down at the shoe company. Amanda's doing a little bit of extra work to bring in a little bit of extra money, but the family is on track. And it was interesting talking to the actors about it because, you know, when we were playing it, they were looking for all the, the signifiers that something was about to go wrong. And it was really interesting because there's a fight that happens in that scene, but it's a fight that you could see in any household on any given night when a family is right on top of each other. In that first scene, you actually really see that things are, are going okay. It's the second scene when we end up finding out what's happened to Lara at school that things really start to go in another direction. And it's the outside world that Lara can't deal with. So when she's dealing with the world inside the apartment and then inside the apartment, the glass, the world of the glass menagerie, she's safe. I think that's why he gave the play that title. The original title of the play was The Gentleman Caller. He may have talked about this himself in, in one of his many books uh, that have been written about him and with, with people who've had interviews with him and in the letters that have recently been published. But it would be interesting to see, did he change the title from The Gentleman Caller because he felt like that was the film version and The Glass Menagerie was the play version because... This work actually started life as a film. Tennessee was actually working in L.A. in a studio, and he was doing some writing, and he started writing the script, The Gentleman Caller. And uh, it's really fascinating because there are a lot of scenes in the film script that aren't actually in the play. A lot of backstory events that you find out how Laura started buying the glass 
the person who was selling her the glass was very important to her. So those are the two titles that the work has existed under, and he decided on the glass menagerie for the play. Jason Mendodakis, a huge chunk of Act Two involves one scene between this gentleman caller who comes to the house ostensibly for dinner, but they want him to meet Laura. That could have been the focus. So the idea of calling a class menagerie definitely does change it. It does. It does. And, you know, it's interesting because when you're working on the play, there are seven scenes in the play and six of them are relatively short, the first six scenes. And then the seventh scene is actually a 40 three-minute scene. The play is only two hours, so you've got a 43-minute seventh scene, and then, you know, the other six scenes take up, you know, a grand total of 77 minutes. And the actors talked about this a lot in rehearsal, where they felt like each scene was a piece that was setting up that one big scene between Laura and the gentleman caller. And, of course, the whole family is involved intimately with that scene. You know, the first six scenes, you really get to understand who the family is, what their dynamics are, what the crisis that they're in is, what the boiling point is, what's about to break, what's really keeping them together. It's kind of fabulous construction. And then this gift of the seventh scene, one of the questions that keeps coming up in our talkbacks and the question-answer sessions that we have after each performance is people are saying, obviously... This is a memory play. We we get that. We we see how you've staged it to be that. You know, obviously he tells us that's what it is. But how does Tom know what happens in that final scene between Laura and the gentleman caller, Jim? Because he's not there. And that's a very, very good point. He's not in that scene. There are a couple of scenes in the play that Tom's was not there. So how does he know if it's a memory play what happens in those scenes? And, you know, the actors, we were talking about it a lot, and the thing that they really felt was that Tom ultimately knew what happened, and then he used his imagination and his abilities as a storyteller, because, of course, he wants to be a poet in the play, to create the story of the scenes that he wasn't in. So we're not actually seeing what happened in the Wingfield house. We're seeing what Tom would like to have happened in those scenes. There's one element that you added, which is ensuring that Tom is on stage at all time, and this is a very small space, so on some level he could have been overhearing. True. Very, very true. <laughs> Except for the, the where he would be at work in the earlier scenes, yeah. But yeah, it's you know, that's an element that we've that we decided to employ for our staging. You know, from the minute the place starts, there's nowhere for Tom to go. The small apartment that we've created is is surrounded by uh, Escher-like maze of fire escapes that all link together and, and are hooked together and, and surround the apartment. So whenever Tom leaves stage and leaves the apartment, he goes up into these fire escapes, but he can't get out of them. So he eventually has to turn around and watch what's happening. So from the minute the play starts, he's stuck in the story until he finishes the story, which we really liked what that did. And it was interesting because, again, in the Q&As, we've had a lot of people ask, what's it like for Nick, who plays Tom, to sit there for that 40-minute scene and to watch it and to watch what happens to Laura over the course of that scene and then... You know, he has to come back in for the very end of the play. You know, he said when he first heard that this is what we were going to do, he was just kind of scratching his head going, oh, my gosh, i got to sit on stage for 43 minutes watching this scene. And then when we actually started doing it, we had only worked on the scene one or two times. He had the thought, I don't know how else I could do the last five minutes of the play. 
if I wasn't sitting on stage watching that whole scene. He said, if I was allowed to go back to the green room and open a book and read and relax while the scene was going on, I don't know how I would come back out and be where I needed to be for those last five minutes. He said, it's priceless to be able to be there every night and watch that entire scene because it's got me exactly where I need to be for the end of the play. This decision to focus on Tom, Amanda's a secondary character here, and yet in all of the other productions, that's the star. Part of it is, I think, that Nick Pelser's so good in the role. To me, he's got the cadence and poetry and... As you said in a talk back the other day, when you brought him in, you didn't know he looked like Tennessee Williams, which was astonishing and changed the focus. Has Tom been the focus in other productions that you know? I've seen a few productions where it was much more about Tom and, you know, his journey to have to tell this story. I've seen productions that have been very focused on Laura, as ours is, where Laura is so quiet that she becomes the center that Tom and Amanda are circling around, and then Jim comes into her orbit. You know, that was kind of what we were trying to do. He starts the play talking to us and telling us that he has to tell this story. Tom ends the play talking to Laura. He never talks to his mom. None of the monologues are addressed to his mother. The only character he addresses from the play is his sister, and he talks to her directly at the end of the piece and says goodbye to her. I really feel like the play is a journey about a man who has turned his back on his family, and the one that he feels he abandoned is his sister. He abandoned both his mother and his sister, but his mother is a survivor much as he is. I have no doubt that his mother, and I don't think he has any doubt, that his mother made it through. Laura, on the other hand, she isn't one of the strong people. She's one of the people that needs other people to help her and to look after her and to take care of her. Although, you know, Anna Bullard, the the actor who's playing Laura for us, would actually probably argue that point. She feels like Laura makes a, a massive change over the course of the play and is in a very different place at the end of the play than she is at the beginning of the play, which is interesting because I think you can kind of feel that a little bit too, the, the strength that she has as Laura at the end of the play. This is the 100th anniversary of Tennessee Williams' birth. Aurora did Eccentricities of a Nightingale. SF Playhouse is currently doing Period of Adjustment, which is a later play and, oddly enough, a comedy. And now we've got his first play. So we've got an early play revised, the first success, and then a late play still during his golden years. What drew you to Glass Menagerie, and were you drawn, let's say, to a lesser-known play like Period of Adjustment before choosing that? I love Tennessee's body of work, the entire canon. The first Tennessee Williams play that we did here when I became the artistic director was Streetcar Named Desire. Since that time, I have actually directed Cat on a Hot Tin Roof uh, at Georgia Shakespeare in Atlanta. And so before Glass Menagerie, I had done two of the big three. I was really interested in revisiting Menagerie. Tennessee is someone that we want to produce on a regular basis here at Marin. I think People will be seeing us do more of his work over the coming years, and Menagerie was one that I felt like I had a very definite take on the play that I wanted to explore. I had a composer that I really wanted to work with on the play, and I had an idea of what I wanted to do with the play that just really made it feel like this was a great time to take a look at it. And, you know, so many people 
do have the opinion of Menagerie that it's a play about Amanda. You know, I felt like we had such a unique take on it in terms of, you know, taking it as a play about Laura and as a play that's really about Tom and Laura that I felt like that was something that was worth revisiting in his centennial. So, oddly enough, we had been talking about Night of the Iguana as well, and that's a play that I think we're definitely going to try to get on our stage here very soon, although... um we're not the only company in the Bay Area that's talking right. about doing that play, so you know we'll see who ends up doing it first. But he's got such an amazing body of work, and we felt like it was a good time to go back to Menagerie and take a look at it because we haven't done it here at Marin Theater Company since the late 60s. So it's been quite a while since we've done the play here at the company. So we felt like it was a good chance to come back and take another look at it before we really branched off into some of the other plays. You're listening to an interview with Jason Minadakis, who is the director of Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams playing through December 18th at Marin Theatre Company, also the artistic director of Marin Theatre Company. As I said before, Period of Adjustment by Tennessee Williams is playing at SF Playhouse and is playing through mid-January. If theatergoers go to see Menagerie and then Period of Adjustment, what can they draw out from seeing both of them, do you think? You know, the thing that's always remarkable about Tennessee's plays is he has an amazing ability to write The Outsider and the people with incredibly sensitive ways of looking at the world. The person who could or would become the artist. I think it's always interesting to look at his plays and to find out who that person is and how they don't fit into a rougher world. Whether it's his comic plays or whether it's his tragic plays, he always has that character who's trying to figure out how to look at the world the way the rest of the everyone else is looking at the world. You know, Jim in, in Menagerie actually has a monologue about the different people aren't like the other people. And that was kind of his first pass at figuring out who are the artists, who are the, the sensitive people, the way they look at the world. And, you know, he would go on to write Blanche and to write all these different these different people who looked at the world in such different ways. And um, I think that's something to look at at his plays, to, to always see where is that point of view within the play and how does that fit into the greater world of the play and you know what is he saying about art in our lives in each one of his plays so that's something that i think is really interesting to take a look at when you're comparing two pieces of his work from different periods jason minadakis in the press release you made a comment that the soundscape and claustrophobic physical world that you hope to find new reverberations in our own economically troubled times. What exactly did you mean by that? Well, you know, we're in what people are calling the greatest financial crisis for the, you know, American people since the Great Depression. And when Tom does that first monologue, it's funny every night how many titters we get of audience recognition of the fact that he's describing a time period that doesn't sound all that different from our own. He's talking about what's going on in Europe, that there are wars going on in Europe that we seem somehow separated from. There are these disturbances that are happening in the United States, some of them violent, some of them not so. And, you know, we opened this play right after Occupy Oakland went so badly. And it was just kind of strange that there were so many things that were happening in our own time period that felt so similar to what Tom was talking about. 
he was talking about, you know, the economic hardships that people were facing, the fact that, you know, the things that they were trying to do, the way they were trying to hold family together, that having a home was a very difficult thing. And it just has a lot of reverberations with our own time period. Adult children living at home with parents. I mean, you know, in this play, Tom is 22 and Laura is 24. And they're still living at home. They've, you know, they're post high school after you know their college period neither went and they're back home and they're with their mother and they're all working to make ends meet so you know there are a lot of families around now that that's sort of the reality for them as well we tend to think of ourselves as being in such a different time period but it's not all that different jason mendadakis let's talk a little about the previous year uh, marin theater company since the last time we talked there have been four plays fuddy mirrors Tiny Alice, Seven Guitars, and Bellwether. The one that had me scratching my head, stunned and confused. as amazing, but I didn't get a word of it. Was Tiny Alice. <laughs> Welcome back, Mr. Albie. Yeah. You know, it was a great experience getting to finally do that play. It's one that I've been working on for over a decade now. And I was finally able to stage the play. It was a very well-received production. We were excited that we were able to do it. We had a great cast. You know, that play is, you know, 40-some years old now, and it's still, in a lot of ways, Edward is still ahead of the curve with that play. I think it plays better now than it did in the 60s when it was first written. I think our ability to view psychological thrillers as entertainment. I think that was just starting in the 60s and, you know, it's something that's become, you know, very common fare for both TV and movies now. We understand the vocabulary a little bit better. The idea of religious and sexual hysteria is not quite new. So it's something that we all have a little bit of vocabulary in to deal with. You know, there are parts of the play, I think, that people understand now better than they did in the 60s, where they were just shocked. And now there's a little bit more of of being able to track the story through the play and, and figuring out exactly what's going on. But he still does things on stage, and he did things in, you know, 1964 when he wrote this play. He still did stuff then that no one would even dare try now. So, you know, Edward is unique, and, you know, thankfully we had a great production of A Delicate Balance at Aurora this year. So the Bay Area continues to produce his plays on a pretty regular basis, which is awesome because he's such a phenomenal playwright. That's one of the things that we're really committed to here at Marin Theatre Company is is going back and revisiting some of those classic plays that we don't often get to see and bringing them into the current period and saying, you know, let's take a look at some of these great masterworks and, and take a look at them and, and see, you know, what made them important and what made them important in their time period and, and are they still relevant today. So you should probably expect us to continue to do that sort of thing. There's also an extraordinary production of Seven Guitars by August Wilson. Do you plan on tackling some of the other plays? I know Joe Turner was at Berkeley Rep, mm-hmm. so that's two out of ten, right? Yeah. You planning to go back to uh, August Wilson? I think so. You know, one of the things that we're very interested in doing here is going back and looking at August Wilson's canon, the ten plays that he did, and to really find young African-American theater artists that are interested in taking a new look at those plays. So many of us have seen those plays, but we've seen them all sort of in the prevailing style of how they were originally done. Very realistic sets. I've talked to quite a few younger artists who have said, you know, they're really interested in exploring them in more poetic vein. 
in a more non-realistic vein to kind of find the poetic parallels between the different plays. And that's kind of what I'm interested in exploring as we go back and revisit them. And I think every couple of years we'll probably be doing one of them. And, uh, you know, we'll try to bring in some artists that grew up on August Wilson but maybe haven't had their own chance to put their own imprint on August Wilson yet. I think it was really successful with Seven Guitars. I think our director, uh, Kent Gash, did an amazing job of finding a real poetic language of what the Hill District was like for these characters. The, you know, the interesting thing, one of the things that August Wilson always said about the Hill District was you're always halfway between heaven and hell because no matter where you are, there's somewhere to look up to and there's somewhere to look down to. And I felt like they did a great job of that in the set and in the, the design of the play. And it added something really different where it didn't feel like a TV set or a movie set. It felt a little bit more poetic and the city of Pittsburgh had a little bit more influence on the production than I've seen in previous versions. So that's something that I think we're going to return to again and again and look for new ways to explore those plays, those, those really great plays. Jason Mendakis, talking about Tennessee Williams and you're going to be directing Othello coming up later this season. We're talking about poetry or almost lyrics, musical dialogue. How do you as a director deal with the actors in terms of trying to maintain the cadence and yet at the same time truthfulness? That musicality that's built into the language and that poetry, when the actors are allowing that work to open up, that's really where the truth of it lives. When they fight it, you can hear it, and it actually, the truth of the moment doesn't really get more revealed. When you try to play a naturalistic moment, when you've got heightened language, it actually feels like you're playing against the text, and it feels jarring. So... I think the brilliance of of what actors do is when they they use that heightened language to open up the moment. And these playwrights have designed the work so that the truth actually lives in that heightened language, not outside of it. You find that emotional truth inside the the language itself and and the construction that the playwrights have, have put into it. Upcoming... We have three plays, Steady Rain, which Mm -hmm. was on Broadway. Yep. Uh, Is it going to be a similar production? That play really relies on the actor so much that I don't think you're ever going to see similar productions of that play because when the entire story rides on two actors and the way they interact with an audience and tell a story, even if the set design, the costumes were exactly the same, you're going to have an entirely different show. I do know that the physical world of this play is going to be a little different than it was on Broadway or in Chicago. In the original run, the actors are certainly not similar to the actors they used in Chicago, and they're definitely not movie stars, so they're they're different than the actors that they used in New York as well, because you know, that was Daniel Craig and Hugh Jackman, so uh, we didn't get them. We didn't bring them in. The two actors that we've got are incredibly charismatic, and I'm going to be really interested to see how the audience relates to them telling the story. And after that, Othello, which again, like Menagerie, and as opposed to a play like Tiny Alice, which needs specific things in it, you're dealing with something that's wide open, virtually with no stage directions. 
Are you going to be setting it in a modern location, anything like that? We are not setting it in a modern location. I've done a very specific edit to the actors that I've cast in this show. We are definitely taking a different sort of look at this world. The costuming is not contemporary. The setting is definitely not contemporary. It's a bit of a mixture of some older periods. I think primarily people will get a feel costuming-wise of the Renaissance, perhaps. Attitude-wise, it's not a contemporary world, but it's definitely not an ancient world either. The attitudes towards women are a little bit more open in the play that we're doing. I'm really excited because the actors that we have are so incredibly strong. I'm excited to get started on it. In the final show of the season, are you regretting choosing God of Carnage, given that at that point, which is next May, the Polanski film will probably just be coming out on DVD? They had to do so many script changes to the play to make it into a movie. I really think that it's actually to our advantage that the movie's coming out because I think it's going to spread the name a little bit. But at the same time, it's such a different story because of what they're having to do to make it into a film that I think people are going to be really excited to see the play version right after they've seen the film, perhaps, or before they see it on DVD. And for the following season, have you got anything absolutely in stone yet? There are four projects that we're pretty certain of already that are going to be from very, very different time periods. We're going to be doing a lot of jumping through uh, our human history and bouncing around to different places. And I think people are going to be really excited about the mix of plays. Jason Mendedakis, to find out more, what's the website? Website is www.marintheater.org, and that's theater with an R-E. Are there any discounts? Always, yeah. Always. Our box office has lots of discounts available for students and also for groups as well as seniors. You've been listening to an interview with Jason Minadakis, who is the artistic director of Marin Theatre Company. The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams is playing through December 18th. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. <laughs> This is 94.1 FM KPFA here in Berkeley and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley. Also 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Coming up next at 3.30 is Free Speech Radio News, so please stay with us.